You are listening to the MythMaker Podcast Network. Well, I think the two most dramatic uh, crises where ritual functions very importantly uh, psychologically are at puberty and at uh, retirement. Uh, the uh, person at puberty is, uh, he has to kill the infantile ego. That's the ego that is subordinate to parents, that um, is in fear of them or in revolt against them and is always reacting in terms of authority, either against it or with it. Uh, The uh, infant is a person who is... um, absolutely dependent. Uh, Then comes the business of killing that ego and bringing to life an adult, a self-responsible actor. In the traditional societies, the society could tell you how you were to act. It had a thou shalt system which was not to be criticized. But what we ask for in our society is a self-responsible evaluation, criticism, and action. Uh, so this is a much more sophisticated thing. It would be harder, I think, to initiate a person into that in, in, a, in a formal formal rite. But when that ritual, when that transition doesn't occur, you have a neurosis. A neurotic is a person who has simply not gone over that threshold. And when a stimulus comes, responds first in the way of subordination, of uh, dependency. Uh, what will my father say? Or what will the hierarchy in the uh, academic profession say if I leave this without a footnote? The, uh, uh, this, this, of course, uh, when you go through for your PhD, you're in an attitude of dependency, you're 45, and then it's too late to make a change, so you stay there. But the, uh, uh, this is a very important transition that simply has to be made. And one reason we have so much money going into the coffers of the psychiatrists is that that ritual is missing, and they are the mystagogues helping people over this hurdle. It's about all it amounts to, I can tell you. People come, and all you've got to do is tell them, grow up. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, then the growing up consists, however, and this is the tough part of it, in growing up into a certain specific society, named the one that's here, now, an awful lot of our disciplinarians of infants are teaching you how to live in a society that never was or will be, or a society that's over the other side of the Iron Curtain or something like that. So you are a person who has been trained to live somewhere else. And uh, th- th- there are a lot of trouble comes out of that. And I don't want to talk too much about that because I'm not a sociologist. But then uh, when the society has got through with you, which happens awfully soon, um, then you're left with this psyche. And your psyche has been uh, prepared, you know, to drive a horse and buggy, and there's no horse and buggy anymore, and uh, you can't drive a car, so what are you going to do with all this thing you got? What Jung calls a disposable libido is on hand. Uh, Where is it going to go? Well, the old initiations to find your own psyche or to eliminate it, you know, either off in the woods and moksha, get rid of yourself altogether, or find some kind of convincing hobby, you know, collecting matches, uh, something that will keep you going for the rest of your days till we get you into that hole. Uh, That's the next thing. And, uh, well, I don't know, looking around California, I think it's working pretty well here, but uh, not many other places. These are the two big, big uh, 
crises, the one turning children into adults and the other turning adults into sages. So that they, uh, you know, uh, there's an old Japanese formula I learned when I was in uh, Japan one time. Um, the, the ages of man, this has to do with the male, the women's lib is not um, involved yet. At 10, an animal. At 20, a lunatic. At 30, a failure. At 40, a fraud. At 50, a criminal. At, now that's where they stop. I go on. At, at, at 60, uh, you've been all through that, and so you think you have something to tell the world. At 70, you know they're not listening. At 80, you're a sage. <laughs> the word individuation and the individual destiny has a lot of associations that I don't think are quite proper. They do suggest, the, the terms do suggest this atomization of society, that you have a lot of uh, uncooperating individuals. But uh, if you have uncooperating individuals, you don't have individuals at all yet. They have not developed their individuation. Uh, individuation consists in knowing yourself as part of a larger whole. And the whole that you are part of is, uh, is part of yourself in a way. One pattern is in relation to the whole cosmos of nature, so that you don't identify with this little bubble and feel panic when that's about to burst, as though nothing were going to be left. Uh, one is just, uh, uh, if you identify your entity with the ego, this is not individuation, this is egoism. And uh, the individuated individual, the mature individual, is one who cooperates easily with, with the world. Uh, now, life is going to face people with, with these intolerable decisions, and this is where you really come up against it and find out what kind of stuff you're made out of, and uh, the draft would be one. But there are other things that come along. For instance, when in, in my generation, we didn't have the draft, we had the depression. And this was a real shocker, too. It's one that you don't hear about. It's not as dramatic as a war. But uh, there were people who jumped out of windows and gave up the ship and abandoned families and all that kind of things and others that... Uh, when you come to what Jung calls an intolerable decision, deciding... Uh, well, let's say a person has to decide whether he's going to support his family by crime or let the family starve to death. His whole moral order has to be revised uh, these are, are terrible things to have to face. In one way or another, life, life brings them to you. Uh, I don't know whether the society in our present day can schedule this kind of thing, but maybe it can. I would say that a, a draft decision that would face every young man at a certain age would be, it would have an initiatory effect. It certainly would. I know that in Europe, during, it used to be uh, inevitable that the young men would have to serve in the army on reaching a certain age, or just a graduation from college age. Everybody had to serve in the army. And that was a kind of initiation for the European um, male adult. But I don't think the society will ever get around just to devising something as a pedagogical device. It will be something more... Uh, necessary in terms of economic or political survival, I think, that would have to work. Well, I don't like to speak for McLuhan because I've never been able really to comprehend a single page 
the, uh, the imagery flashes around so fast and so much that I'm never quite sure that I've understood what he's, uh, he's really talking about. But uh, it, it certainly is, is true that the media the, that we are now um, enc uh, encountering and that is encountering us has transformed our whole consciousness system. Now, I've noticed with students now, we have students now who were, so to say, brought up on TV. Uh, somebody uh, calculated that almost any student entering college has something like 20,000 hours of TV viewing. And uh, what I have found in my own teaching is that students are talking now in cliches more than they used to. They have all had equivalent experiences. They're all interested in the same thing in bunches. Uh, there is much less idiosyncrasy in the, uh, the student quest, which came from finding your own book, you know, and being alone with a book without this mass of, uh, you've got to think about this today. Now it's all, you know, ecology. Uh, that was a word that uh, nobody outside of a biological lab ever knew, but now it has to do with, you know, litter bugging and all kinds of things, ecology. And uh, also opinions about political uh, matters are all perfectly ordered, and people are all interested in this, and nobody's interested in that. I'm having the wonderful experience of having everybody be interested in mythology now. Uh, <laughs> my royalties have gone up ten times about the start of three years ago. Hope to God it stays there. But they, uh, the, the point is that uh, I don't think this would have happened uh, without uh, these, these mass movements. Now, this may be a good, this may not be a good, I don't know. It's, it's what I have noticed as coming along in the McLuhan line here. People are more free, but they enslave themselves. Or perhaps parents enslave their children. They want to sleep late in the morning, they turn the TV on. I was visiting some people a couple of weeks ago, they said that they turn the TV on, they have a little boy, and they have a dog. And when they get up in the morning, the two of them are looking at the TV, and they've been there. Now, what's got to do to the dog? That's... <laughs> Joyce. Uh, very intentionally developed mythological motifs, uh, saw them as operative in life, whether people knew it or not. For instance, the very title of his book, Ulysses, tells you that uh, Leopold Bloom and Stephen Dedalus are, in their life experience, having experiences equivalent to those of Odysseus and Telemachus, his son. Uh, he doesn't push it, you know, point for point for point. But out of this broken field of uh, apparently banal and indifferent experiences of the day, uh, he shows that the great archetypes of the old epics where thought things were visible in clearly delineated forms are operative. And when you study Ulysses uh, you, uh, carefully, you can see him playing those things through. The forms come up broken in the day of uh, Bloom and Stephen, but they do come up, they're there. And what happens in that book is that these two men who have been closed, and particularly Stephen, closed through compassion for each other, and it's a very subtly and unaccented uh, moment of compassion, they open up. How many planets are you What's that? 
Finnegan's Wake is absolutely structured on myth. Uh, every single, every single sentence uh, carries uh, a couple, at least, of mythological themes in it. The uh, the uh, the very beginning, uh, river run past even Adams from Swervershaw to Bender Bay brings us by commodious vicus of recirculation back to Hoth Castle and environs, is a uh, it carries a whole stream of myths. Uh, would you like me to elucidate that sentence? <laughs> the, the sentence begins with a small letter, R. It, it, it isn't a large letter. So, you know, it's not the beginning of a sentence at all, even though it is the beginning of the book. Or well, where in heaven's name would you find the beginning of the sentence? You find it, of course, the end of the book, where uh, the last sentence runs out. Away, alas, alone, aloved, along the river run past even Adam. So he's written the book in a circle. There you're starting right out with the first word. Past Even Adams, there's a little church in uh, Dublin called Adam and Eve's. Well, Even Adams is paradise. The river run is the river Liffey, which runs in a circle, runs through Dublin uh, into the waters of the bay. The uh, sun hoists the uh, mist up and little clouds form in this mother womb of the sky. And then the rain falls in the Wicklow Hills south of Dublin. And it starts as a little girl running and runs then north as a matron in midlife and then out as an old scrub woman back into the water again where Daddy Ocean is. Meanwhile, this circle of time, the first thing it encounters when it leaves the garden is Adam and Eve, Eve and Adams. River run past Eve and Adams. Swerve of shore and bend of bay is the form of the Dublin landscape, but the swerve of shore, that's the swish, and there's the circle, uh, the serpent temptation. The swerve of shore is the skirt, you might say, of uh, Ireland, Mother Ireland, seducing Father Ocean, who goes crash on the beach. Swerve of shore to bend of bay. Bay is spelled B-E-Y. The bay uh, is a, it's a, uh, it's a uh, Muslim potentate, goes takes us back to Hoth Castle and environs. Now, Hoth Castle is a castle on a, on a hill, a headland that's out there. That headland is called a headland. It sticks out into the water. Dublin is here as though it were the belly of the giant, and the feet are in Phoenix Park, fortunately, as everybody says, uh, Ireland was named for Joyce. Uh, Phoenix Park, the place of the fall and the redemption, the phoenix who burns himself and all that, his feet turn up there. So this is the Humpty Dumpty man, you see, the fallen giant, and the river running around is his little wife, Anna Olivia Pluribel, whispering to him of such and such and so and so, and uh, how uh, let's get going again and start the world all over. Uh, that's just the first sentence, not you off that way. And uh, the, the name of the castle there, Hoth, Castle and environs, the initials are H, C, E, which are the initials of the hero of the book, whose initials mean here comes everybody. And, uh, well, but that is a start. We're in, we're in you see. And uh, the thing goes on then in that mythological way. His point is that, as he tells already in The Portrait of the Artist, the art has to be concerned with the grave and constant in human suffering, that which cannot be corrected, that which is absolutely inevitable to all life everywhere. And the, uh, you might say, corpus of images that has carried the grave and constant to all time for man is the corpus of the mythological heritage of mankind which is variously inflected in various culture worlds, and he's brought all these inflections back into one great fun-for-all, as he calls it. Well, the nice thing here is that nobody's saying you have to read James Joyce. 
You, you, you make your free election. You choose your own uh, guru, and you drop him when you're through. Now, I suppose everybody here at one time or another learned to ride a bicycle. And didn't somebody run along beside you for a little while until you got your bounce and then let you go and then flop, came back and picked you up again? Well, so, uh, so Joyce can do until you learn to ride your own bike. I saw a fellow out here yesterday riding a one-wheeled thing. Uh, now, how many people had to pick him up for a while before he was on that? The, uh, the more difficult, the greater, the more help you're going to need. But you won't be great at all until you're off on your own, paddling your own canoe, as I used to say. Mm -hmm. So you can choose Joyce or you can choose somebody else entirely. Some person I wouldn't even want to talk about. And uh, there won't be any bad feelings anywhere. But it used to be not so. You had to read that big black book and take it in a certain way. Hmm? The airplane plays a big role in people's dreams and in the imaging of the free flight of the human spirit. Uh, the whole mechanical world has come along to supply uh, symbolic experiences. Automobiles, um, when people in their dreams dream of a windshield being broken. That uh, has very interesting psychological implications, which could never have been there if there had been no automobiles and windshields. The life that you experience has for you automatically psychological messages that it, it, it uh, says things to you. And also, the images that once were saying things to people don't say anything anymore, because there are children in New York who've never seen a lamb, so how can they know anything about being washed in the blood of a lamb, let alone uh, having seen a lamb sacrificed? And when you haven't had the experience, what good's the image? Uh, these things are, uh, they have to roll along with the uh, quality of the time. The unconscious that receives the images remains the same. The images are what are different. Let me give an example. Uh, in Europe, the forest, the eastern forests, represented the realm of danger. And in the forest were the wolves. Now there is the realm of danger and the threat in the realm of danger. In Polynesia, there is no such forest and there are no wolves. But there is an ocean and there are sharks. And in the Polynesian myths, the ocean and the shark will play the mythological role that the forest and the wolf play in, in Europe. The landscape the society, the uh, architecture and all, supply the cast, the people who are going to play the roles. The psyche dictates what the roles are to be. It's like Hamlet being played or Macbeth being played in the high school in London. And I once saw a Macbeth in Harlem that was completely Harlemized and was one of the most thrilling and, and vital Macbeths you've ever seen. And it had nothing to do with anything Shakespeare would have uh, uh, organized. The, the plot was there. The cast of characters gave it its quality, its form, its nuance. So it is, but the, we bring this human body into this world, that world, another. These people killing animals all their lives, hunters and food gatherers. These people planting fields all their lives. These people fighting wars all their lives. These are different domains where the human psyche has to function. And the basic collisions and Difficulties remain fairly constant all the way through. I did in my primitive mythology book, the first one of the Mass of God series, uh, I, I think when you have a human race that was two 
million years, a hunting race, and now for only 6,000 years has been a city-dwelling uh, race, uh, there, there is a very strong likelihood that uh, the uh, biology of the human species is fitted for the terrors and uh, deeds of, of the hunting life. Uh, there's another amusing thing about psyches. This is found in animal psychology already. The love they have for what might be called supernormal images. It has been found that certain birds uh, will, if you place this bird's egg down to be, for it to incubate, to uh, brood, and then have an egg of a larger bird, and then an ostrich egg, this bird will go to hatch the ostrich egg, not its own. Uh, there is a tendency to like things blown up, you know, way beyond nature. Now, this, this is a very inspiring thought. This is what's known as idealism. And the, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the bigger image is the one that, uh, you know, pulls us on. Uh, that's Avic Weibler here. And uh, the, uh, uh, that's also in our funny little psyches, too. But uh, the, the real uh, thriller, I think, is this deep jungle image, which is down there. Why isn't everybody so afraid of snakes? This is, this is a very strange thing. It seems to be very deep. Now, maybe just psychological experience of some kind of image that the snake duplicates. The snake looks to me like a sort of traveling uh, esophagus, you know, an alimentary canal. And so it sort of symbolizes the avidity of life to gobble you up. Uh, perhaps you see anything like that. But uh, even a tiny little snake is a, is a shocker.